Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would put your words in my mouth today, that what I would say would be coming from you, and that not only would we hear what you have to tell us, that we would see your son, Jesus Christ, and having known him and been known by him, be transformed into his image. We ask this in his name. Amen. The last few weeks and the next few weeks to come are kind of a challenge for many of us, especially Anglican preachers. We're used to, I think, uh, preaching from the Passion about once a year, maybe twice, but it's all basically contained within Holy Week. And the way in which we have been going through the book of Matthew, this now puts us going through several chapters of the Passion narrative, very block by block. By block. And well, my temptation might be to say, well, the theme of today's sermon is that Jesus died for you. That was also the theme of, you know, the last few weeks' sermons and the sermons to come. And so we're trying to, I think, focus in on some of the unique aspects of each of the pericopes or the paragraphs or whatever you want to call them that we are considering. Today's reading, if you look it up in your Bible, it has a little heading, and what I'm going to tell you here is not that original because your heading will tell you the same thing. Jesus is mocked, right? I know that the first part of this is very obvious. The soldiers, the centurion and, and the Roman soldiers, they take Jesus into the praetorium and they proceed to do what? They proceed to put all of the trappings of a king in sort of a mocking array on top of him. And then what do they do? Having bowed down before him, they beat him, they mock him, they scourge him, and they send them out. And Ma the way that Matthew focuses on what happens in those first few hours in which Jesus is led to the cross, and he's nailed to the cross, and he hangs there on the cross, a lot of Matthew's focus and attention goes to the continuation of that act of mocking. The way in which, sorry, one second, this is it's very high for me. I'm going to just put this down here for a second. Sorry, Logan. That just feels better and more natural. Thank you. <laughs> the way in which Jesus is, uh, the mockery of Jesus continues, not only from the Romans, but now from his own people. Not only from his own people, but from the very criminals who are hanging on the cross next to him. Everyone is mocking Jesus. The scorn is palpable in every breath of what they are saying. Jesus is being mocked. Now, one of the interesting things is I was contemplating this passage and trying to think about, okay, what does the Lord want for us this week? I began to think about the way in which we Christians, particularly in North America and the rest of the West, um, find ourselves, culturally speaking, is in a place where increasingly Christian values, Christian beliefs uh, are under a certain degree of scorn and mockery. The interesting thing is that we have gone from being considered prudes, for instance, um, about things like sexuality, to now we're villainous about things like sexuality. I don't know if you've encountered this, but it can be very difficult for you, for me, well, I'll just speak for myself, for me to present myself not only as a Christian, but as a clergyman of the church and have people not sort of get this little look in their eye like, oh, you're one of those people. You're the one of those people that we talk about and complain about and kind of mock, not just because, you know, you're sort of a traditional little fuddy-duddy, but because you're part of the problem in our society. 
I don't know if you have felt this instinctively. I'm speaking to a group uh, for whom many of you spend a lot of time on campus. And this has been my experience on campus. This has been my experience in the elite halls and increasingly uh, the experience in the business world. That is, if you present yourself as a Christian who believes the things of the Bible, you are increasingly subjected to a certain degree of mockery. Now I say this, this is also a time in which everyone, and I would, I hate to say it, but Christians included, are raising the volume on the mockery that they extend to the people in their orbit. That is, not only are Christians being mocked, I hear a lot of Christians mocking all kinds of other people and things. Now, we may be mocked or even derided because of our views, you know, traditional views on human sexuality, especially when it comes to flashpoints like LGBTQ issues, where as, as Bible-believing Christians, we say, yeah, we believe that God intends for marriage to be between a man and a woman for the rest of their lives. When not only are we being mocked for those kinds of views, I actually hear a lot of Christians who return the favor and begin to mock those who are living lifestyles that while the Bible does not approve of, nevertheless, these people are made in the image of God and are worthy and deserving of a certain degree of respect. That is, I find that not only are we being mocked, but we are the ones that are doing the mocking. And the funny thing about being the one doing the mocking is that the more you mock someone, the less you're often able to take it. I feel a certain frustration, anger, rage boiling up among many Christian subcultures, and even perhaps in the dominant Christian culture, where we are tired of being mocked by the culture at large. We're done with it. We begin to reach for ways in which to stop the mocking voices around us. Now, for some of that, that means capitulating to the culture around us. For others, that means being saucy and just increasing the, own vo our, the volume of our own mockery, and it becomes a vicious cycle. I think we can look at a passage like we have today in front of us, and as we consider what the mockery of Jesus was all about, I think we can have an insight into how we as Christians and as believers today, I'm speaking from a position here in the West, in North America, especially, but all believers, can begin to consider how we should respond and how we should understand our situation when we go through mockery for the sake and for the name of Jesus Christ, for his word and for his kingdom. Because, and this is perhaps the main point that I want us to take away from our passage this, this afternoon, is that mockery was one of the principal means by which Jesus has brought us salvation. That is, enduring mockery was part of his father's plan. Enduring mockery was part of the suffering. It wasn't just the nails being driven into his hands or into his feet. It wasn't just the crown of thorns being pressed onto his head. It wasn't just the sighs and the groans as his father turned his back on his son. Jesus suffered the mockery of those around him so that you could be saved. So part of what I want to ask today is what was at stake in the mockery that Jesus was experiencing at the hands of his oppressors during his passion? What was it about the mockery that was so destructive to Jesus himself, and consequently so constructive to our salvation, so that 
as Peter says, we may follow in his footsteps. The first thing that I want to suggest to us today is that mockery, this mockery in particular, was attacking Jesus's character. Now, when I say character, I think most of us, at least coming from a North American Western perspective, when we think of character, we think about the part of you which embodies the virtues that you are supposed to embody as a human being, right? We tend to think about, well, a person with character has courage, they have wisdom, they have prudence, they have righteousness, they have temperance, they have all of these different virtues. This is a person, a man or a woman or even a child of character, someone who has enough resources within themselves to do the right thing and then to do it. The interesting thing is, at least in the ancient world, and I think in many parts of the world today, character is seen as a much more expansive concept. And I want to apply this to Jesus, because this was, would have been the perspective in the ancient world. You see, character was not just about who you are on the inside, because who you are on the inside is the product of your relationship with your entire community. Does that make sense? Many times in the West, we have a very individualistic, um, a very one-person-centered view of what matters in someone's life. But in the ancient world, you, there was no you know, dividing line between you and the community of people that you lived among, which meant that when the ancients talked about character and defending your character and building up your character, they weren't just talking about developing your internal resources as a person. They were talking about developing your reputation and the strength of your relationships within the entire community. They were talking about how the community viewed you because you could not be considered by yourself apart from the community. Now, the people who are putting Jesus on the cross, whether it's the Romans or whether it's his own Jewish people, they are assailing his character in the usual Western way in which we talk about it. But just as the private, the private character that you have is going to affect eventually the public persona that you adopt, your public persona is in relationship to the public and goes back as is also constructed by the public. They attack Jesus's character, as we would call it. I feel like I'm repeating myself here. I promise I'll move on. They're attacking Jesus's character, but what they're doing in the process is they're attacking his whole web of relationships with the entire community. They are destroying the foundation of what makes Jesus, Jesus as a part of his people. First of all, what do they do? They attack his claim to be king. This is the first thing, right? If you are the king, do what? Come down from the cross. You are so great that you could rebuild the temple in three days. Let's see you come down off the cross and show us how it's done. What do the soldiers do? They, they mock Jesus as the king of the Jews, and they kneel before him as if he, he were a king. And what does Pilate put over his head in mockery not only of Jesus but of the Jews? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But of course, all of this is in jest. All of this is mockery. It's scorn. It is contempt, which means that they don't believe it. The Romans don't believe it. The Jewish people don't believe it. The, their leaders don't believe it, which means that this is also an attack, not only on the fact that he is king, but also on his claim to be truthful itself, because Jesus has presented himself as the son of David, as the anointed one, as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the one who has come into the world to deliver his people. And here Jesus is, suffering on a cross, 
and they cannot let it be. What do they do? They surround him and they hammer home the point that not only is he not a king, but he's a liar. And what does this mean? That means that this is even an attack on his claim to be holy, to be the person that his father says he is. What this, the effect of this is, the, fact, the effect of this is to take the one who knew no sin and to make that person sin. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, right? God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But Jesus becoming sin was a holistic process. It wasn't just that the Father looked at Jesus and said, okay, we're going to call you sin. As he embodied the public persona of the sinner, the sin itself, all of the contempt and all of the scorn, all of the reviling, all of the mockery descended upon him, put on him by his own people, and consequently isolating him from them. What does this mean? He had to do this in order for us to be saved. It wasn't just that he had to go and die on a cross all by himself. It's not like he could have just, you know, you know, had some kind of private execution done by Pontius Pilate to suffer for the sins of the whole world. No, he had to endure the public shame and mockery at the hands of his fellow men. I know we spent years studying the epistle to the Hebrews, but pardon me if I quote here. He says that what did Jesus do? He considered the cost and of the cross. He knew what was coming, and it says, and scorning its shame, he endured it so that he could sit down at the right hand of the Father. It is the shame of the cross as people assailed his character, as people denied his office, as people rejected who he said he was, and tarnished his very holiness, that Jesus was redeeming you and me and everyone. That, I think, should lead us to be thankful, on the one hand, that Jesus was willing to do it, not simply to have his feelings hurt by the mockery, but to have his entire support system, his entire city, his entire people, the people that make him who he is, turn on him, deconstruct him. And if we are to follow in his steps, what does this mean for us? I want to suggest that it must mean that we should be prepared to allow our character to be assailed as well. Now you're going to say, but David, I mean, I agree. We should have our character assailed for, being, for doing the right things and saying the right things, but sometimes they're going to tell lies about us. Guess what? They told lies about Jesus. You say, but David, they don't understand how important the things are that we believe as Christians, the positions that we hold as Christians, the values that we have as Christians. They've got it all messed up, and I'm going to say yes. And so did the Romans, and so did the Jewish leaders. You're going to say, but David, they're acting in bad faith when they attack our character. They're doing it for political purposes. 
They're doing it to bolster their own credibility. They're not listening. And I'm going to say, yes, they did the same to Jesus. We as believers and as Christians, I'm not saying that we should go out there and demand that people mock us. But we should not be surprised when people mock us for believing in what Jesus tells us to believe and for practicing what Jesus tells us to practice and for proclaiming what Jesus tells us to proclaim. We should expect mockery. We should plan for it. And we should think about how we should respond as Jesus himself responded. So, again, first, the mockery is attacking Jesus' character. Secondly, allow me to add that the mockery is attacking Jesus' communication. It's attacking his ability to get his message across to the people that are there. One of the most notable things that we can see in the passage as we read it is that Jesus does not say a single word. In the passage beforehand, as he's talking with Pontius Pilate, for instance, he doesn't say much, but he does say, when Pilate asks him, so are you a king? And Jesus says, you have said so, which is ancient Near East speak for, yes, yes, I am. He says something. Later on during the crucifixion, after the clouds darken, and as things begin to get really dicey, Jesus begins to say things from the cross, and we often collect these seven sayings from the cross and would read them during Holy Week or Good Friday or those kinds of things. But in this moment, Jesus says nothing, as Matthew records it. Jesus is simply there, experiencing all of it. The, the soldiers beat him. What does he say? Nothing. The soldiers offer drugs to him, right? They offer him wine mixed with gall, supposedly to dull the pain. What does he do? He says no, it just refuses it. And even as the leaders of his own people take his very words and take the words of scripture and lob them up against them, what does he do? He says nothing. I mean, even when the devil comes to him, when he's being tempted, the devil comes to him with scripture and it says, Jesus, if you, it says that if you throw yourself from the temple, that, that God will send his angels and will lift up your feet so that you're picked up. You don't strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answers the devil and responds with the words of another place of scripture and says what? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But here, as the leaders of his people are throwing the words of Scripture at him, what does Jesus do? Nothing. He says nothing. Now, I think part of this is because of the mockery itself. In public speaking, we're often taught that there are three ways in which you can frame an argument and make your argument successful. The main one that we like to focus on is what we sometimes call the logos, or the reasoning of the argument. That is, the argument itself is supposed to make sense. If I tell you that the sky is blue and you look out there and you can see that the sky is blue, well, it's because I've made a good, rational, coherent argument. We also talk about sometimes about the pathos of the argument. The pathos being the part that automatically resonates with you. If I say, you know, red is the best color out there and you already like the color of red, I'm depending on, your path, on the pathos, on your own personal opinion and your your presuppositions, your predispositions towards the color red to get my argument across. 
But the third is what we sometimes call ethos. And this ha happens to coincide with the credibility of the speaker himself or herself. That is, that you find the person who is speaking trustworthy and credible. I hope, for instance, today, that you personally find my arguments persuasive, that it's resonating with what you're already thinking. But I also kind of hope that you kind of trust me a little bit as David, as a likable guy, as a pastor, et cetera, et cetera, and how I'm presenting myself to try and get my argument across. One of the most devastating things when pastors and church leaders fall into sin, for instance, is that many times we have believed their words because of who they are, because of their personal ethos and the dependability and the reliability of their wisdom. And when they fall into sin and temptation, whether it's for power or money or sex or any other kind of, any other kind of problems that they can run into, many people experience a crisis of faith because that, that pastor's ethos has been destroyed. It makes us question everything that he or she was saying. In attacking and in mocking Jesus, one of the things that they have done is that they have stripped him of his rhetorical ethos. They're treating him as if he has nothing good to say. They're mocking his person, and by mocking his person, they're compromising his ability for people to take him seriously. They're even repeating his own words back to him. And in the process, no one is going to believe him. So compromising his message. What does this mean? It means, I think, that in order for Jesus to establish his gospel, his good news, his message that he entrusts to his apostles and they entrust to faithful people who go on continuing and spreading his message, in order to establish his gospel, Jesus had to suffer mockery of himself and of his message by those who took his very words and turned them into abuse. Imagine the indignity of having such an important message, because Jesus' message was about all kinds of things, but it was at its heart about himself. And as they attacked him, and as they attacked his message, and as they attacked his words, and they attacked it by mocking it and throwing them back in his face, you can just imagine Jesus saying, but this is what my people are going to be saying for centuries and millennia as they bring my grace and my love to the entire world. For all time and for all generations, people are, are going to remember that I said that if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it again in three days. For all of eternity, people are going to remember that I said that, yes, I am the King of Israel. Yes, I am the Son of David. They're going to remember who I am. They're going to remember that I am the one who offers forgiveness through my blood. I am the one who gives forgiveness in my name. I am the one who is going to be able to restore lives, bring healing to the sick. I am the one who is going to be able to raise the dead. And what does this mean for us as we try to follow in his footsteps? It means that we must be prepared to effectively even be silenced by the mockery of those around us. Now, I'm not saying that we have to go silent. I'm not saying that we should stop talking and stop trying to communicate and share the word of God. I am saying that there may come a moment in your life when as you try and share the word of God, the very word of God itself gets thrown back in your faith, face as evidence that you have no credibility as a speaker. I have already found this in my life surrounding things like LGBTQ issues. 
If I go and I'm having a great conversation with someone, I'm sharing the gospel, we're hitting it off, I'm building a certain amount of credibility with this person so that they might want to believe me. And then they bring up LGBTQ issues and I try to be as as genial and upbeat and as winsome as possible about it. But at the end of the day, they keep pushing and saying, well, but what do you believe about human sexuality? And I have to say, well, I believe that God created us male and female in his image. He intends marriage to be between one man and one woman for all of their lives. For an increasing number of people, my simply stating what I believe Jesus himself has told us to say is going to mean that I am no longer credible as a speaker. And that is deflating. Now, at this point, we can come in and trust that the power of God is going to operate despite my lack of credibility now as a speaker. The amazing thing is that Jesus, of course, as he is suffering the mockery of his peers there on the cross, of his lessers, he is winning the salvation of the world in the process. The power of God is expressed in weakness. And even when it feels like we are weak in trying to express the word of God and bring about an experience of his grace in the life of another person and to speak publicly as well as privately about these things. And it may feel like no one has listened, no one is even capable of listening. We believe that the power of God is still able to be expressed in that kind of weakness, but we have to be prepared to experience that weakness, that mockery, and that sense that we can no longer be heard. Now, this leads me to our third point, to my third point. This kind of mockery not only attacks Jesus' character, it not only attacks his communication, but it also attacks his community. Note, for instance, in this passage, the absence of Jesus' followers. Mockery, as I said before, tends to isolate someone. That is, in fact, its design. When we begin to mock something, you see this in junior high kids, right? They begin to mock something, what happens? If you're wearing brown shoes, I'm wearing brown shoes, and suddenly we're mocking brown shoes, well, you either ditch the brown shoes and get on with the program, or you're going to be subject to the mockery of the rest of the in-group, right? Communities are often built, almost exclusively built, around a sense of these are behaviors or characteristics of the in-group people, and everybody else is an out-group person. You're out of the group because of this or because of that. Mockery reinforces those. We can see here that Jesus' followers are absent. Now, that may be a kind of frightening thing, uh, or that may be because they are frightened by the whole situation, for sure. And yet, the way Matthew tells the story, at this critical moment in which Jesus is being mocked, they're nowhere to be seen. The closest we get in verse 55, and we didn't read verse 55 today, is that after it's all said and done, Matthew simply observes that far, far away, there were some of the women that were following Jesus, looking on. But he intentionally puts distance there, to the point that in order to have his cross carried by someone because he could no longer carry it himself, the soldiers had to recruit Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. 
we see that mockery had the effect, among other things, threat of violence, of breaking up Jesus's community. The mocking distanced Jesus, not only from the Romans, but also from his Jewish people. It distanced him from his fellow sufferers. Now, Luke's gospel tells us about the difference between the thief on the one side and the thief on the other, that the thief on the one side had a change of heart. But at least at the very beginning, Matthew records that both of the thieves who were crucified on either side of him heaped scorn upon him. They were dying on a cross, and they took time out, struggling for breaths, because that's how you died on a cross, right? You had to pull, push yourself up or pull yourself up, take a breath, and then settle down again. You had very few breaths and very little energy to take those breaths. And what did they spend those breaths on? Mocking Jesus. You would think that dying together would at least provide some kind of bond, but they themselves mocked him and distanced themselves from him. One could even see this as anticipating what would even happen between Jesus and his father. I'm not saying his father mocked him, but it is not long before there in the darkness that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus is left entirely alone. Alone with the shouts of people who have no regard for him, and who even take the good things that he has done and the true words that he has, he has said and throw them back in his face. But what does this do? One of the interesting little details in this narrative is that the soldiers cast lots for his clothing. Now, we don't know exactly why here in Matthew, but one of the other gospel writers tells us why. It's because Jesus' clothing was what? It was one piece, it was a single tunic. And from very early in the history of the church and the way that that has been interpreted, they've looked at that garment and they have said, that, brothers and sisters, is what the church represents. The church is like a seamless garment made of one piece of cloth. It cannot be divided. You even can cast lots for it, but you're not gonna tear it in two because it is perfect, it is seamless, it is beautiful. And the author to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus had to suffer shame and scorn and mockery and reproach outside of the camp. And then what is he saying? Let us go ourselves outside of the camp and join with him there. Scorning the shame of those who would say otherwise. One of the things that Jesus does as he dies there on the cross, experiencing not just the guilt of our sin, but the shame of our sin, cut off from his people, cut off from humanity. In that moment, Jesus is constructing a new community. As he dies there for the sins of the disciples, he has in mind those disciples that he is going to call back to himself. He is going to appear there in the upper room and there say, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Just as the Father and I have an unbreakable relation, you and I are going to have an unbreakable relation. We are going to be a new community where having experienced the shame of the cross, there is no longer any shame that should exist between any one of us. The church, this church, and when I say the church, I'm, yes, I'm talking about the universal church, but I'm talking about our church, Christ the King, or if you're visiting us today, whatever other church you're attending, 
is called to be a community in which having come to the cross of Jesus, where he experienced shame and suffering and death on our behalf, there ought to no longer be any kind of shame that exists between us because as we come to one another in forgiveness, as we reach across to one another in love, there should be nothing that divides us. No reason for us not to be able to show our face to one another, but only a loving and accepting embrace. If we follow in his steps, however, what does this mean? We have to be willing to help not only construct, but support this kind of genuine community. Now, I think based on some of my other words, you may be thinking, well, David, what this means is that as the world scorns us, as the world heaps its mockery upon us because of what we believe and because of what, how we live, because of the message that we have for the world and the way in which we desire earnestly the transformation of people's lives as they come to Jesus and are transfigured by him. That we need to form these kinds of communities as insular bubbles that protect us from the scorn of the outside world. It's not quite what I'm trying to say. What I'm also trying to say is that part of the way in which Jesus' kingdom spread is that this kind of community in which shame is put aside and we reach out to one another in love is also the kind of community that needs to be open and embracing of those in the world around us. I've talked a lot about how we as believers, we as Christians who want to take the Bible seriously and what it says about matters regarding sexuality, are experiencing and should expect to experience more mockery. And yet, I think we are also called to create the kind of community in which people who have different understandings and practices about sexuality should feel welcome to come and experience the love of God. And this is difficult. It is difficult to be able to say to someone, I do not believe that your lifestyle agrees with what Scripture says that your lifestyle should, should look like. I, don't, I, I, I do not affirm your lifestyle. And yet, I want you to come to a place, to a community, to a group of people, a worshiping group of people who, having come and stood at the foot of the cross, there will be no judgment, there will be no shame, where if you come to Jesus, your guilt and shame is wiped away. And here in our midst, you are not going to see a single look of judgment, but only an embrace, the kiss of peace that Paul is talking about, whether it's metaphorical or not in our context. I want you to come to a place where all of that is put behind us, we treat one another as fellow bearers of the image of God, as fellow sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, as people who have hope, of a promise, who have a future. But this can only be experienced if we begin and continue to live it as a people, as a community. Because again, it's not just about us as individuals. It's about us together recreated by Christ, but reconstituted as a new community by the Holy Spirit. I could just keep preaching and preaching and preaching, but I'm going I'm to wrap things up here. I want us to remember and to consider everything that Jesus has done for us. 
When we talk about the mockery, the scorn that Jesus experienced at the hands of the soldiers, at the hands of his own people, we're not just talking about something which hurts us emotionally or hurt him emotionally. This was world-ending and world-crushing for Jesus, and he did it for you. It's impossible for you to be saved. It was impossible for you to be brought back from your shame and back to the Father. Unless Jesus went through this. And now Jesus is calling us to be willing to undergo suffering, scorn, shame, mockery, and so many other things. Why? Because he is standing there with us. Because he will not abandon us. Because no matter what happens, if we stay true to him, if we believe in him, follow him, obey him, we are never going to be disappointed. I encourage us to consider those words as individuals and as a church. Amen.